This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hey, everyone. It's Sunday, February 27th. I am usually not in your feed over the weekend. But with the announcement today that Ukraine has agreed to diplomatic talks with Russia and with Vladimir Putin putting his nuclear arsenal on high alert... We wanted to get this conversation out a bit earlier than usual. We recorded it last week. Many observers have been caught off guard by Ukraine's ability to fend off Russian forces so far. But Slate's Fred Kaplan, he's not among them. In this conversation, we talked about how the history of Russian aggression and democratic pushback have led us to this moment. All right, here's the show. When I asked Fred Kaplan, who writes Slate's War Stories column, whether he'd anticipated the kind of open warfare we're seeing in Ukraine, he had an admission to make. I have to confess I was surprised. Fred actually came on this show back in December and made a prediction that an invasion wasn't really what Putin wanted in Ukraine. He was wrong about that. For Fred, it's still sort of stunning. It'll be interesting if the archives ever reveal when Putin made up his mind to go for it. You know, he'd assembled this massive force. He could have found some way out to to gain a few victories and, and go home. But now that this invasion has happened, Fred's been thinking about the history here. The moments that, in retrospect, seem predictive in some way. He's found a lot of them. What's happening right now? Versions of it have happened in Crimea, in Georgia, and before all of that, in Czechoslovakia in 1968. Back then, Czech leaders were sounding a lot like the leaders in Ukraine do today. The country was opening up to democratic change. The head of the Communist Party in Czechoslovakia, Alexander Dubček, declared that he was pursuing a policy of, quote, socialism with the human face. I am very happy about all these new changes in our country. And I consider our Mr. Dubček uh, as one of the best politicians we have got. Like the first thing he did was like, make sure the press could be free. And, And reaching out to Western Europe for support. Well, uh, Leonid Brezhnev, the head of the Soviet Union at the time, decided this cannot stand. He moved in not 150,000 troops, 
but 250,000 troops, five tank divisions to get rid of Dubček and to occupy Czechoslovakia. Good evening. Once again, the Soviet Union, demonstrating a colossal contempt for the opinion of mankind, has resorted to brute force to keep a satellite nation under control. Now, at the time, he had a lot of help. The, the Czech military was very much on Moscow's side in this. Now, you have an independent Ukrainian army and a, a people that has been independent uh, from Moscow's orbit for 30 years. So you're saying that Putin's like ripping a page from an old Soviet playbook, but the circumstances have completely changed. I, I think that's right. I think that's right. And Fred says it's important to think about how this story ended decades later with Czech leaders joining NATO and then the European Union. But breaking free from Moscow's grip took decades. And that means Ukraine could be just beginning to fight. Combat is just one phase of a conflict like this. I think it's quite likely that in this first phase of combat, Russians will quote-unquote win. But then what? Today on the show, what history can tell you about how Russia and Ukraine got to this point, and how the long view might shift your perspective. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next?, Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Fred Kaplan thinks about the modern-day Russian plot to take back its sphere of influence as starting sometime around 2008. Back then, a few more Eastern Bloc countries were being admitted to NATO. And at a conference in Bucharest, U.S. President George W. Bush suggested that Ukraine and Georgia could be allowed to join next. Here in Bucharest, we must make clear that NATO welcomes the aspirations of Georgia and Ukraine for their membership in NATO and offers them a clear path forward to meet that goal. These comments got instant pushback. Everybody said, this is a terrible idea. First, these countries do not qualify for it right now to get into NATO. Second, this is going to be needlessly provocative of Russia. Because even back in the 1990s, when, when NATO was first expanding, just about everybody, even the real ardent enthusiasts for doing this, you know, into Czech Republic and Poland, Romania, and the Baltics and so forth, they all stopped short of Ukraine. Because it's right on the border. It's with right on the border and it's and it and it's so much a part of Russian interests and Russian culture. The the ties are are, are enormous. So when Bush said this, everybody objected. But then when the declaration came out, the statement, the official statement from the conference, it said. Ukraine and Georgia will become members. It didn't say when, 
but it said they will become members. And it was four months later that Putin did kind of what he's doing now with the two aspiringly breakaway republics in, in Ukraine. Yeah, explain, for people who don't remember, explain what happened in Georgia in well, 2008. Georgia became an independent republic, as did Ukraine after, you know, in, in 1991. And then, but there were these uh, two provinces, Abkhazia and South Ossetia, which were heavily Russian in population. There was a separatist movement took hold, which was very strongly aided by Moscow. And uh, they claimed, oh, you know, we're under attack from the Georgians, and so we have to fight back, and Russian troops moved in. Russia's military might much in evidence, its army on the move in western Georgia. This was the scene early on August the 8th, 2008, as Georgian rockets pounded the breakaway region of South Ossetia. It was the opening of a devastating five-day war between Russia and Georgia, with each side blaming the other for setting it off. How did the world react to this? You know, other things were going on, Iraq, for example. So not a whole lot. And it was very small. It was kind of, some people like John McCain raised a big fuss, but it didn't seem to be worthy of a big fuss, quite honestly. Russia's swift invasion of those two areas in Georgia was just the beginning. Six years later, after protesters in Kyiv ousted their Moscow-backed president and replaced him with a leader who had aspirations of joining the EU, the Russians struck back by occupying the separatist region of Crimea. And the reaction from the Obama administration at the time was muted. Here's the thing. In 2014, when they annexed Crimea and took out a slice of eastern Ukraine in you know, fraternal assistance to the pro-Russia separatists there, there was a big meeting, you know, a big National Security Council meeting, meeting within NATO, what to do. And President Obama decided to focus on economic sanctions, not military sanctions. He didn't even do what was done later, which was to send anti-tank missiles, anti-air missiles. He did send things like um, night vision gear and radar and blankets and equipment and helmets. What was the reasoning there? Well, his reason was, look, Ukraine is a lot more important to Russia than it is to us. Any military move we make is going to be matched and far exceeded by Russia. And therefore, I'm not going to get into a big arms race, which we're going to lose. Even now, even as Russia is mounting this massive invasion of Ukraine, Biden is very clear and careful to note that we are not going to be sending U.S. or NATO troops into Ukraine. We don't want to get into a war with Russia over Ukraine, which we have decided, using similar logic to Obama, uh, is really not worth the devastation that, that such a war might very easily escalate to. But looking back at what happened in Georgia and what happened in Ukraine in 2014, I mean, it's impossible. I know hindsight is 2020, but it's impossible not to see a picture of Putin testing the limits of the Western world. Uh, well, you know, he had to wait until he had the means to 
test the limits. You know, until quite recently, Russian economy was still very weak. It's still quite weak. I mean, I think the, the GDP is not as, as big as Belgium. I mean, look, I think, uh, I think Putin and many Russians, I, I, listen, you don't have to be Putin to be a Russian who would be very disturbed by seeing Ukraine go all the way over into the West. I think he viewed the enlargement of NATO with alarm. And there, I think, were even legitimate security reasons for his viewing it that way. Like, you, you think he legitimately had something to fear from more and more arms being put at the border? Bush's Bucharest statement, you know, that NATO, Ukraine will become a part of NATO, I think was a big mistake. I think there was some way of just owning up to the fact that Ukraine is not going to become a part of NATO and making some other kind of security arrangements uh, for the country. Uh, now, do I think that this is all our fault? No. Uh, I think a deal could have been struck with any number of other people who have been the leader of Russia in the last several decades to show him, look, this isn't going to happen. Uh, you know, Biden offered a lot of arrangements. He said publicly, look, Ukraine is not going to become part of NATO anytime soon, but we can't just bar them from, from doing this. And by the way, we can open up military exercises to transparency. If you really think that these missile defense launchers that we have in Romania can fire offensive missiles, well, come over and inspect them so you can see they can't. Let's have a conference to talk about. I mean, he, he, he offered a lot of things that a lot of Russian leaders would have taken as a possible way out of the crisis and a way to, to rack up uh, some, some wins, like, well, they're taking our interests seriously. But not Putin. I think what happened was that Putin, who's always been obsessed with uh, not only the loss of empire, but also maybe his destiny, as the man who can, to some extent, restore that empire, uh, that plus possibly the isolation that he's been in since COVID, the, the stories that he's surrounded himself with, with a handful of advisors who are, you know, even more obsessed and paranoid on this score uh, than he is. Well, and you can just look at the pictures of Vladimir Putin in the last few days. Like, he he refuses to be closer than 20 feet to anyone, even his closest allies. Yeah, that, that, apparently that table was specially built for this occasion. This um, is the table where Macron was at one end and he was at the yeah, other. Yeah, that's right. So uh, there are a lot of things going into this. I mean, the other thing is, you know, unlike... Unlike back, say, during the Cuban Missile Crisis or any time in the Soviet Union, there was a Politburo. You know, Khrushchev did some crazy things. The Politburo kicked him out. You know, they, they denounced Khrushchev for his harebrained schemes. Uh, there is no Politburo anymore. It's all Putin. It's all Putin. He has advisors, but they don't know what he's about to do. You know, two days, two days before he formally recognized the separatist-controlled two provinces of Ukraine as independent republic, Russia's ambassador to the UN said, let me make this clear. We regard the provinces of Donetsk and Luhansk as part of Ukraine. He said that. Two days later, Putin said, no, they're not. They're an independent republic.
I would be very surprised if you found anybody, or very many people on the record, not months, but years ago, who said, Russia is going to launch a massive invasion and take over all of Ukraine. That's, that's, a, that's a very big, big deal. Now that they've done it, I think they will find that in the long run, it will be a huge mistake. When we come back, what options does the international community have to squeeze Vladimir Putin? It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The situation for Ukrainians right now is a brutal and deadly waiting game. Since NATO doesn't want to risk an all-out war with Russia, everyday people are getting trained to defend the country themselves. And Western retaliation for Putin's aggression has been indirect, mostly sanctions. Biden has acknowledged that these, that these quite extensive sanctions that he's now imposing, far more extensive than any that have ever been done before, except possibly against Iran, it'll take a while to, to work. It'll take a while to have an effect, if they have an effect at all. One assumption is that they will have an effect on the Russian elites and their families. There are lots of elites in Russia who are friends with Putin, who have nice apartments in London, whose children study abroad, who take vacations in the, and, you know, the Riviera, and all that is now frozen. And also their businesses are frozen, major banks not being able to do transactions in dollars, pounds, or yen, or euros. This is, going, this is a very big deal. And is that going to make some of these people sufficiently pissed off that they either influence Putin or try to do something to get rid of him. 
Hmm. I mean, I was reading an article in The Atlantic that argued economic sanctions won't do it here. So the only thing that's going to influence Russia or Putin at this point is coffins. It was so dark to have him say it out loud. Well, there's something to that. And I think, I mean, we'll see. Uh, at this moment, I there's not a lot of reporting going on on the extent or effectiveness of the Ukrainian army's resistance. There are going to be coffins. Then there are going to be families whose sons in the army are not coming back. Once if they do conquer Kiev, uh, there's going to be resistance. Russians will die. It's, it's, it has to be a combination of things. But if he has a hard time hanging on to Ukraine, if uh, his, his guys are getting killed in the process of doing so, plus, you know, Johnny isn't going to be able to go to Oxford again next spring, or not Johnny, but, uh, you know, Volodya isn't going to be able to go to Oxford again next, next spring, then, you know, these things can, can add up to something. Uh, one thing I do know from, from looking at revolutions in recent decades is that when momentum starts, it can rev up to full speed very, very quickly. Something one of my producers pointed out is that the conflict in Georgia that we talked about back in 2008, it was only a few days long. Yeah, six days. But Georgia is very small. Ukraine's a big country. So we should prepare for more than that. It's it's a very different kind of thing. Uh, and it is an all-out invasion. He is, you know, he has either launched missile attacks on or sent troops to towns and military installations in all parts of the country now. East, south, north, and a little bit west. So, And they're moving towards one another there. It's a pincer movement to cut everything off and to uh, divide resistance. Is there any argument here that what's happening in Ukraine right now is a move of desperation? Like, I was reading in the Times, one reporter's take that, you know, Vladimir Putin is trying to maintain a sphere of influence and a lot of his allies are getting old. They're facing discontent from their population. So is there an argument here that there was pressure on Putin and that's why now? Uh, possibly. I mean, but he might think that he's gained the upper hand. Uh, you know, Belarus has now basically become a part of of, of Russia, at least in terms of the military, he might feel that he's got some chips now that, that he didn't have before. Uh, much depends on, on what China does. China has been kind of equivocal. They've been more critical of the U.S. and of NATO for, you know, allegedly uh, escalating this fight, but they have not, they have not outright defended uh, Putin's move. Yeah, I noticed that in Biden's press conference just last week, what he said when asked, are you leaning on China to pressure Russia? He said, I'm not prepared to answer that. I'm not going to answer that question. And, you know, it's interesting, a few days before the invasion, uh, at the weekend before at the Munich Security Conference, the Chinese foreign minister 
uh, besides, you know, defending the alliance with Russia and so forth, said that China stands for sovereignty and territorial integrity, and that includes Ukraine. Yeah, it would be interesting if, given President Biden's attempts to kind of lean towards China in an antagonistic way, if all of a sudden the United States and China found themselves in some sort of partnership over Russia. Well, I mean, it's been a terrible miscalculation on our part, I think, over the past few years uh, to make enemies of both Russia and China. I, 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 don't, I don't see how we maintain a lot of influence in the world with that. But before all this business with Ukraine, I mean, that was China was suddenly the big the big player on the on the threat board, right? So NATO and Europe, I mean, that that had almost been forgotten. It's amazing how quickly these things can change. Yeah, but I mean, the other thing is that Putin's major strategy in the last decade, really, uh, for foreign policy has been to divide the West, to exploit fissures within the Western alliance, to drive wedges between the U.S. and Europe, to weaken NATO. That was the way that he would be strengthened, to weaken the alliance against him. And what he has done by moving into Ukraine is to reunify uh, NATO under U.S. leadership and to strengthen the coherence of NATO and the European Union in a way that just hasn't been the case since the end of the Cold War. Do you think Western powers will be more focused than they have been on the in the past on Russia, given all of this? Oh, well, they are. For, for many years after the Cold War, the question was, should NATO even exist? What is its role? What, what are we all about? And for a while, we, we talked about, oh, well, NATO will become an expeditionary force, you know, to, to jointly go after terrorists. And that's what, you know, the, the coalition in Afghanistan was about. And there were efforts in Mali and elsewhere, and and but it was all done rather half-heartedly. But now, yeah, this this has refocused NATO on its uh, on its original mission, which you know is rooted. I mean, it's in, in the most in the most solid roots there can be geography, which is to provide a common defense in Europe. You seem optimistic in a weird way. In the long run. <laughs> I think that, that in the end, uh, you know, it's dangerous to make predictions. The last prediction I made on your show proved to be utterly false. But, <laughs> but I think in the end, this will be seen as a major blunder on Putin's part. Fred Kaplan, thank you so much for joining me. Sure, thanks. Fred Kaplan writes the War Stories column for Slate. He's also the author of The Bomb, Presidents, Generals, and the Secret History of Nuclear War. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Elena Schwartz, Carmel Del Shad, and Mary Wilson. We're led by Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. I'll be back in this feed bright and early tomorrow. Catch you then.
save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in store and on Menards.com. Save 